at a meeting this week and trustees of, uh, presidents actually of uh, some of our Baptist schools in Georgia were coming into that meeting and presenting the names of their trustees. I had the distinct privilege of sitting here and the presidents came and sat here. And I remember saying to about the second one that walked in, you know, the reason that I recommend that our kids go to Liberty and other schools is because your theology department stinks so bad, I don't want to send kids that I've trained to love God to go to a school that teaches them to question God. And I said, if you'll start providing better theological education, I'll start recommending our kids to go there. And he said, well, what do you mean? So I proceeded to tell him. <laughs> and I'm grateful that uh, we've got a number of students that have gone uh, through Liberty, and I'm grateful for the guys and gals that go there and make an impact, and the Lord uses them and is using them. And I, I'm grateful that we have options. Uh, and that the Lord uses places like that and for what uh, Jerry Falwell has done with his vision there just to try to touch a world with the gospel and uh, to not be comfortable but to allow God to use him to stretch all of us to be better at what we do. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to ask you something. What do you think it's been like waiting in the wings for Cal Ripken to miss a game. What do you think about a guy that gets drafted, calls up from the minor leagues, and he's sitting on the bench, and they say, great, man, what do I get to do? You get to play backup for Cal Ripken. Well, he's been playing since five years after the Earth's crust hardened. I mean, he's as old as dirt, and he never misses. I mean, when do I get to play? Well, when he misses a game. I mean, can you imagine there have been guys that have played shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles that have been in the major leagues and have never been in a game except when, by chance, maybe Cal Ripken went out in the seventh inning. They've never started a game. Played their whole careers and can never say to anybody, we got to start. Well, for 15 years, Timothy was a backup for Paul. And all of a sudden, Paul hands over control to a church and the keys to the church and says, Timothy, I've been leading this church and I've started it and I've got it go gotten it going and now I want you to take over. This was one of the five largest cities in the Roman Empire. The city of Ephesus was a pivotal city. And Paul turns to Timothy and he hands over to him a letter and a position. The letter we know is the book of 1 Timothy. And it is that letter that is the church constitution of the church at Ephesus. It is important for us to realize that when God constitutes a church, he constitutes it on theological, not legal documents. God's constitution for a church is, what does this church believe about Jesus Christ? That is the basis for everything that it does. And so Paul turns this church over to him, and he is anticipating coming back to Ephesus, and he's anticipating visiting with Timothy, but just in case he doesn't make it, he writes this letter. 
Now the outline for the book is there at the top of your notes again because we haven't looked at it in a few weeks. And I want you to simply see again, he's talking about teaching and outreach and apologetics in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he talks about prayer and worship. In chapter 3, he talks about the philosophy and selection of leaders. Now, if a pulpit committee were going to look for Timothy, they would not have looked at Timothy. If they were looking for someone to be a young, aggressive, new pastor of the church, they would not have looked at him. Chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us he was considered too young. Chapter 5 and verse 23 says he was prone to be sick. The book gives us the idea that he was timid by his temperament. He was more inclined to lean on Paul than he was to lead for himself. Now, when we come to chapter 4, we see Paul zeroing in on the problems that are facing the church. He mentions them in chapter 1, but he attacks the problems in chapter 4. Look at the quote by Leon Morris. I think there's a quote in your note sheet. It is always easier to get into an argument than to live the Christian life. It is human nature to prefer vigorous discussion to sacrificial living. It is still quite possible to use the Bible not as the source of the divine training that is in faith, but as the starting point for the exposition of our own pet theories. Calling these theories Christian or orthodox or sound doctrine does not make them so. For that, there must be a real subjection to what God has revealed. These Ephesians were chasing rabbits. They were forgetting to keep the main thing as the main thing. And, I, and before we get into chapter 4, I want to back up to chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, he uses three phrases to describe the church. First of all, he calls it the household of God. The church is more like a family than it is a business. The church has to always see itself as the family of God, and we operate on a family mentality, not on a business mentality. When the church becomes a business, it becomes dangerous because then it just performs and functions according to rules and codes, and we forget that it's about relationships. The second metaphor that he uses is the church of the living God. Now, this is an obvious phrase for Paul to use because he's talking in opposition to the dead idolatry of the Ephesians and all the idol worship and all the false gods that are around him. He is talking about the church that is alive, one that has been adopted into the family, the called out ones. And then he uses an interesting term that he only uses for Ephesus. The pillar and support of the truth. In Ephesus, there was the temple of Artemis. And in that temple, there were 127 pillars. They were made of marble and jewels and gold to display the greatness of Artemis. Paul takes that imagery that they would have been familiar with in their own city, and he says the church is to display the greatness of God. When people look at the church, it should be the pillar and support of the truth. When the people look at the church, they should look at us and see the greatness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul goes on in verse 16, and he gives us what is considered a fragment of a first century hymn. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This was, he says, a common confession. Everybody agreed to it. Everybody professed it. Everybody embraced it. And what you have in verse 16 is the life of Christ in one verse. If you wanted to describe the life of Christ, you would find it in that one verse, revealed in flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now notice, in verse 15, you have the principle of truth. In verse 16, you have the person of truth. The principle and the person are tied together. And so Paul, building his foundation on truth, says now we must deal with the deceptiveness of false teachers. Verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be able to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, Paul's letter has kind of a, a military ring to it. It, it. He is talking about the goal of his instruction is love, but the problem in the church is they've left their first love. We know that by the letter in Revelation when Jesus said, I have a problem with you, you've left your first love. And so Paul is issuing a command here to be on guard and to watch out for these false teachers. Apparently, the church decided they didn't want to do that. He said that explicitly these things are going to happen. The church should never be caught off guard. There is no excuse for the church being surprised that error and heresy and false teaching will come in. As I said to one of the college presidents this past week, you know, everything by nature drifts to the left. You can talk about the church, you can talk about theology, you can talk about politics. Life left to itself drifts to the left, drifts to compromise, drifts to less values and less standards and less morals. You have to constantly work to keep things moving to the right or keep them in center and to keep life balanced because life just drifts that way. Now, what Paul is doing is he's saying, reminding us, like he did in chapter 1, to teach the word, win the lost, and defend the faith. Now, just note, if you would, because we don't have time to look there, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 17. Israel, it says in that verse, sacrificed to demons who were not God. Now, if Israel did it, we can be guilty of doing that. Let me give you some examples. If the church fails to 
teach the word and win the loss and defend the faith. That's what he told us to do in chapter 1. Then that church is cooperating with demonic forces. If the church fails to have prayer as it should and worship as it should, then that church is following deceptive spirits. Chapter 2. If the church fails in holding scriptural standards for leadership, then she becomes infected with demonic and deceptive leadership. Chapter 3. What Paul is trying to do is build a locked case that says if the church doesn't stay focused, she will fall. The church must stay focused on the truth. Now notice, he says, the Spirit explicitly says. In other words, it's predictable and it is inevitable. It is predictable and it is inevitable. Now, we know that wheat and tares grow up together, that sheep and goats intermingle. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, Paul speaking to the Ephesians said that these kind of people were coming. In 1 Timothy, he says, they are here. He warned in Acts 20 that they were on their way. Now when he writes the letter to Timothy, he says they've already arrived. And notice that he uses this word, fall away. The word means to abandon or to depart from. The church had a problem that it could abandon or depart from. It also means to remove oneself from a position originally occupied to another position. It is a falling back. Uh, I'm a Civil War buff, and I, and I know that there are times when uh, they would entrench and they would dig in, and then when because of the attack, they would begin to fall back, and they would regather and reform the lines and maybe have to fall back again. What he is saying is the church has a tendency, if it doesn't keep its eyes open, to say this is where we're going to draw the line. This is what we believe in. This is where we stand. And when pushed, rather than taking a stand, the church just retreats, takes a few steps, and falls back. And then she takes a few more steps and falls back. And pretty soon, the church has totally compromised her message for fear of confrontation. Now, he gives a description of false teachers, and he says several things about them. First of all, he says they're from Satan. The root of their error is in the garden of rebellion. Now, there's a subjective genitive in this Greek, and it means that this is not a teaching about demons. This is a teaching done by demons through men. It's very important that you understand this is not a teaching about demons in the church. That's not what he's dealing with. He's talking about the fact that demonic influences inside of human teachers have taken up their residence inside the church. Now, turn if you would to 2 John chapter 7, uh, verse 7. There is no chapter 7 in 2 John. There is only one chapter. 2 John and verse 7. We're going to look at a verse here and verses in uh, 2 Corinthians. I just want you to see how the Scripture tells us that we should not be surprised about false teachers. 2 John, verse 7. <clears throat> Everybody got it? All right. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now note that. A person is a deceiver if they don't believe that God was in flesh dwelling among us. That means that anybody that calls Jesus a prophet 
is a deceiver. That means that anybody that says that Jesus is just a good teacher is a deceiver. Paul says, John says, that if anybody comes, if anybody comes and does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming into the flesh, they are deceivers. Do you understand what that means? That means that there are people in this world that want to tell you that they love Jesus and somebody else. It's not adequate. That's a deceptive teaching. Verse, uh, and this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Verse 8, watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Notice now, verse 10, you need to underline it. I'm not going to comment it. I'm going to let the verse speak for itself. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do you understand what that says? Don't say come in and have a glass of water. They won't drink Cokes. And do not give him a greeting. Now notice, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now I'm going to tell you what happens, folks. False teachers and false witnesses show up at your house and you try to be nice to them. And they'll go down the street and say, well, do you know brother so-and-so down there? You know, he's a member of Sherwood Baptist Church. And we just had the most wonderful conversation with him, and they will suck people in by using your name deceptively. You know what? I don't even open the door. I tell the kids to run for the bedrooms and close the doors and pretend like we're not home. Because <laughs> Paul also tells me to avoid feigning vain and foolish arguments, and if a man is blinded by sin until God takes the scales off his eyes, he cannot see the truth. Now, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't know how much clearer John could be in what he wrote. And remember, John was the apostle of love. <laughs> it wasn't Simon Peter that said that. You know, Simon Peter said, just, just beat him up. <laughs> John would have said love him, but John said, don't let him in a door. You know, to take the welcome mat off the front porch. Boy, I'll get a letter about this one. Okay. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 12. <clears throat> but what I am doing I will continue to do that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now watch it. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to to their deeds. Mark it down. You may not like it. It may sound harsh and cold, 
but God's word says if they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, if they do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, they are of the occult and they are of the devil and they are from the pit of hell and they are of Satan. Now, they may act and clean up a lot better than you do, but it's Satan appearing as an angel of light. And don't be sucked in by anybody who tells you we ought to all just kind of join arms and get along and work for the common good because theirs is a different agenda from yours. Our agenda is the salvation of souls. Their agenda leads to the ultimate damnation of souls under false pretenses. Now, second thing, they use hypocritical lies, uh, literally false words. Now, there's a difference between hypocrisy and lies. Hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense. Lies are deliberate falsehoods. These intentional deceivers have an agenda of deception. Now, sometimes Satan appears as a roaring lion. That's a frontal assault. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. That's a subtle assault. But he is a hypocritical liar, and he uses false words. And sometimes when these false teachers show up, they will use the same words you use, but a different dictionary. They will use your language, but they will not use your dictionary or not believe your theology. They are hypocritical lies. Number three, they deny the Word of God. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to instruct with a good, clear conscience, and he talks about these people have a seared conscience in verses 3 through 5. Now, these folks are really interesting because uh, they despise marriage and they demand abstaining from food. Now, John Stott, is that quote in your notes, the quote by John Stott? Okay, I want you to read it with me, please. If God made something, calling it into being by his word, and by the same word declared it to be good, and if as a result of our knowledge of these things we can thank God for it with a good conscience, then we have a double cause to receive it, enjoy it, and thankfully celebrate it. God's creative word and our grateful prayer have together sanctified it for our use. Somebody get me a Coca-Cola. <laughs> or a cup of coffee. Or let me eat pork. Because you see, if God created it, then it's okay. It is a deception to say, well, if you won't eat certain things or if you won't drink certain things or if you'll just abstain from this or we shouldn't marry or we shouldn't do this, that's all deceptive because it denies the Word of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You know, God has blessed us with so many things, but these people will say, no, you, you can't do this or you can't do that, and they'll try to box you in to a lifestyle and to a way of thinking that has nothing to do with holiness and certainly nothing to do with godliness. Now, uh, these demonic teachers focus on minor teachings. If you remember in chapter 1, they pay attention to myths and genealogies. I know I sound like I'm focusing on one group which has yet been named, <clears throat> but uh, I, I'm sorry, you know, I don't need anybody being baptized for my dead relatives. My dead relatives are either in heaven or hell, and nothing anybody does now is going to change that. 
and they want to get involved in speculation rather than inspiration. I don't have time for speculation. I've got enough trouble trying to live up to the inspiration of the Word of God. And so God's Word tells us that these people build doctrines by chasing rabbits and by getting involved in speculation and emphasizing external rules and regulations. Now, let me just give you two quick statements here. In every generation, in every church, and remember Paul is saying these people get inside the church. He's not necessarily even referring to a group outside the church. He's referring to people who have weaseled their way inside the church. And in every generation, there are people who want to be stricter than God is, or there are people who want to be more lenient than grace will allow. Avoid both extremes. Avoid the people who try to have more rules than God has. And avoid the people who try to be more lenient than grace will allow. That was the problem in Corinth. They wanted to turn their head to everything. They wanted to ignore everything and just say, you know, let's just let people live like they want to live because that's what grace and love is all about. No, there are boundaries. There are guidelines. There are ways that we're supposed to live. And we can neither draw a box tighter than God draws it, nor can we erase the lines that God has given us. And so he talks about the fact that these people deny the Word of God. In fact, if you want to make a note and look at it later, Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 through 23, Paul talks about those who are full of foolish pride because of their human way of thinking. Now, what is his direction to the true teachers? He gives five commands. What are we supposed to do? What are true teachers supposed to do if they are going to teach the Word of God and make sure that the church stands true to the truth. Number one, don't spend your time in trivial pursuit. Don't spend your time in trivial pursuit. Look at the first part of verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. I'm not going to go there. <clears throat> but you know, Paul said this before telephones. <laughs> and he said it before tea parties. And bridge club. And Paul said, don't get involved in that stuff. It's just fables and old wives' tales. and Don't get involved in all that kind of stuff. Don't get involved in trivial pursuit. Folks, life is so short. We don't have time to try to figure out what the fourth toe on the third horseman of the beast is. I mean, we don't have time to look at. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You know what? The Lord's going to come, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, no-trib, whatever you are, the Lord's going to come, and we're all going to find out we were all wrong. And it's going to shock us that we got there anyway. I just wonder what the Lord did before charts. I'm glad we can explain him. You know, we get in such trivial pursuit about so many little things. We try to figure out, you know, how many demons are there? What difference does it matter? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We try to figure out how many angels can fit on the head of a pen. Now, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, does anybody hear it? You know, we get into such trivial things worried about stuff that doesn't matter. Just always ask yourself the question, do I really want to get involved in this discussion? Do I want to spend a lot of time reading about this and studying about this? If I had a week to live, would this matter to me? 
Because what you do is find yourself studying the Word of God more and studying the opinions of men less. Number two, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. Verses 7 through 10, he's talking about keeping in shape there, and he talks about how the athlete trains his body and that we should train our soul. The Salvation Army used to encourage its officers to engage in regular knee drills. I like that. Discipline yourself. To engage in regular knee drills, bending a knee, disciplining yourself. Keeping your body in shape is great, but keep your soul and spirit in shape is better. Number three, don't back away from the truth. Look at verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's a whole lot easier for me not to deal with some of the things that I deal with. The only problem is, is that one verse follows another verse and one chapter follows another chapter. And if you're going to preach through a book of the Bible, you've got to deal with things that you're not always comfortable dealing with. But Paul says, Timothy, you don't have a right to choose your message. Preach and teach and prescribe these things. That's one reason why I like to preach through a book of the Bible because then nobody can say I'm picking on them. Just one verse comes after another. You pick up where one leaves off and, and God's Word is there and God's Word says what it says and as long as we stay true to Scripture and take a verse in its context and don't try to apply it in a way that God didn't intend for it to be applied, then that's what we're supposed to do. By the way, that's what you're supposed to do in Sunday school too. Sunday school is not a place for us to build our platforms Sunday school is a place for us to prescribe and teach the things of the Word of God. Number three, don't apologize for what you do. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. <clears throat> I have written a note here. Outlive the skeptics. And that's not about length of life. That's about the level that you live on. Outlive the skeptics. Outlive those who are cynics. Outlive those who think and say just crazy, dumb things. I mean, I've, I've you know, in the ministry, you get a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember when, uh, let's see, my first phase was, I have children your age. My last phase has been, I have children your age. My first phase was, you don't have any children. My next phase was, you have children, but you don't have children as old as mine. It's always something who says, well, I don't have to listen to you because. Paul said to Timothy, don't put up with that stuff. You may be young, you may be weak, you may be sickly, you may be timid, but you live such a life that they cannot deny the life that you live no matter what your age. Timothy was probably in his 30s. And here's what Paul is saying. You and I are to live such a life that nobody can look at us and say, well, I can discredit and discount the message because I can discount the messenger. Live a life of quality. I remember my, the first church I served in was First Baptist Church in Mariana, Florida. And uh, I served there as a summer youth director. And after I'd been there about a week, I was ready to come home, leave the ministry, quit working with young people and everything else. Uh, I, I was not having a good time. And uh, 
I wrote Terry a letter, and I, I told her, I said, you know, this, this is frustrating. I, I don't like this. I just, you know, I, I want to do something else. And she wrote me back a letter, and she included this verse in it. Don't let anyone think little of you because you're young. That's what the Living Bible says. But be their example in your faith, your love, and your pure thoughts. To be a true teacher, you don't apologize for what you do, and you don't apologize for what the Word says. Number five, verses 13 through 16, don't quit. I tell you, folks, it, you know, there's a part of us that, you know, you get tired in this world of trying to stand up for what's right, and you just want to quit sometimes. I mean, you just want to say, you know, does it even matter that we stand up for the truth? I mean, if all the world is going this way and we're going against the current, if all the world is saying do this and we're saying, no, we're going to go do this, if we're going to keep running counterculture, if we're going to keep going the opposite of what is acceptable, if we're going to keep being a voice in the wilderness, if we're going to keep having to say things and the world looks at us and says, you folks are old-fashioned. You need to get with it. You, you, know, you need to get a life. You need to come into the 90s. You need to be like us. You know, we just, there are times when, quite honestly, we just want to quit and get along. But we can never afford to do that if we are committed to the truth. You just can't. It's not an option. I can't back away from what I know to be the truth. God has not given me that option. Even when it's uncomfortable for me, even when it's uncomfortable for people in our society, even when it makes people feel uncomfortable, even when it's inside the church, people feel uncomfortable. You cannot back away from what God says. You can't quit. Because the day you run the white flag up, it's over. The day you surrender to public opinion, it's over. And folks, God never runs his church by public opinion. He's never asked the world for counsel and advice. He has never sought Gallup poll or a research group to find out if what he has said from the very beginning is still acceptable. It is still, thus saith the Lord. You don't like it, that's your problem. It's not God's problem. And to be the church that God wants us to be, we have to be willing to say, thus saith the Lord, if nobody else says it. If we find ourselves in an increasing minority, we have to be willing to stand on the truth without compromising. And we can't quit. Why? Because 40 years ago, some people founded a church here wanting to do something in a community that had not yet exploded on this side of town. And we would disgrace every drop of sweat and every dollar given and every brick laid and every life changed for the past 41 years if we decided we just don't want to do that anymore. If we decided to just settle in, we would bring mockery to the names of the people who have gone before us to set the standard to say Sherwood is a church that's committed to something. We would be an embarrassment to their memory. And we can't afford to do that. God's called us to be a unique church. 
And that call has a cost to it, and we cannot quit. If we quit, we ought to take the name down and we ought to close the doors because God has a call on us. And it's a call that goes for our entire lifetime. And I want to encourage you, in a world that increasingly says to you, hey, back off. You know, go along and get along. Don't be so strong in your views. Don't be so set in your ways. You know, what if we're wrong? What if Jesus Christ is not the only way? What, what if some things that we believe to be unholy and godly, God says, well, don't buy that lie. That is a demonic influence slipping into the church to try to get us to take our armor off and to quit fighting the battle. And when they get in the church, they will destroy it. For every church destroyed is ultimately the result of a church that denied the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the authority of Christ over his church. So I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to pray that we would never be a people that apologize for doing the right thing and for being God's people in this world and for being salt and light in this community and we wouldn't back up, we wouldn't give up, and we would not let up until God lets us go. I want to ask you to stand, if you would, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we come before you tonight as a people who have, through the years, sought to stand on your word. It'd be real easy, Lord, for us to just kind of be polite and have a nice little social order and convenient little community mindset and and yet you've called us to so much more. Lord, I pray that as we invite people to be a part of this church that we would never back up from what this church stands for. To win an audience, to increase attendance, to build a crowd or to make an impression. Lord, I pray that our tenacity for the truth would be so strong that the false teachers would know they cannot get inside these doors. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from what the Spirit explicitly says will come to a church. That is false teachers inspired by demons. Give us discernment. Give us insight. Give us wisdom. To protect the pulpit of this church. To protect every classroom in this church. Every organization from the smallest child to the oldest adult. That we would let nothing get in the walls of this place. That would bring about any compromise in the message of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for a church that believes the truth and was willing to stand on it. And Lord, it is not our intention to be ugly, but it is our intention to be firm. We will not be moved from standing on the authority of your word and the position of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. 
He is the only answer. He is the only way. And we will not back up from that, no matter how pleasing that message would be to ears that want to be tickled. So God calls us to stand tall and straight and firm, dressed in the full armor of God, knowing that you have called us to a battle to defend the faith, to win the lost, to teach the word. I pray that you'll find that us in us in this day and every day that you grant us life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If there's a decision for you to make tonight, then I want to encourage you to do it on the very first verse of this invitation to come and to join this church, to come and to be a part of what God's doing in this place, to come and to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you've thought that there's other ways to get there, but today you've discovered God's Spirit has convicted you that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. I want to ask you to come and to come right now as Job begins to sing. glad that you've joined us for the Sherwood Hour from Sherwood Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send your name and address to the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. That's the Sherwood Hour, 2201 Whispering Pines Road in Albany, Georgia, zip code 31707. If you would like a video.